tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to the feast. Journeys through time in search of a good meal. Many of us consider travel to be a fundamental part of life. That summer vacation to the beach, studying abroad for a semester in college, the business trip to find new clients, or even the visit home to see your parents over the holidays. Many of us travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles each year, whether for business or pleasure. But without the modern conveniences of cars, trains, or airplanes, what would happen to these journeys? Would we still be willing to head home each year if it meant a two-week ride in a bumpy carriage over rough, unpaved roads? Would that business convention still seem so appealing if it meant a one-month voyage over stormy seas and a constant threat of pirate attack? When we think of medieval Europe, it's common to imagine an isolated world, one where few people, apart from the elite, had the resources or the inclination to travel far beyond the village or town in which they were born. Yet records show that by the high medieval period, let's say between 1200 and 1450, between 200 to 400,000 people from all walks of life grabbed a hat, their shoes, and hit the road each year. These folks weren't heading to that business convention in Omaha or visiting their relatives in Poughkeepsie. They were going on pilgrimage. A thousand-year-old Christian tradition Pilgrims believe they earn spiritual redemption by visiting places associated with holy power, which could range from entire cities like Jerusalem to specific burial places of saints. But traveling hundreds if not thousands of miles in medieval Europe was no easy feat, and one of the major concerns for any pilgrim was where they could find a good meal. With no McDonald's at every highway stop, securing safe food and drink on these trips was critical for all pilgrims, particularly those without aristocratic or royal resources. But just as true today, travel often introduced medieval pilgrims to new cultures through sampling local cuisines, tasting new flavors, or spices unheard of in their hometown. Pilgrimage, although a spiritual journey, often was also a culinary one. Today on the feast, we'll experience a bit of that culinary journey as we head to Spain in the year 1490. It's hot on the road. We've been walking for hours now, and the June sun is unrelenting. Today we are pilgrims on the great Camino de Santiago, also known as the Way of St. James, one of the most famous and most popular pilgrim paths in medieval Europe. It is the year of our Lord, 1490. 
winding our way through the great Spanish kingdoms of Navarra, Aragon, Castilla and Leon, the goal of our pilgrimage is the Galician town of Santiago, the burial spot of the body of St. James, a famous first century Christian who, legend says, traveled here in order to convert the native population. St. James, known in Galician and most of Spain as Santiago, whose burial spot was rediscovered in the 9th century, has since become one of the most popular saints throughout Europe. Pilgrims from France, England, Hungary, Sweden, and beyond travel to his burial place, now housed in a majestic Gothic cathedral, all in the hopes of spiritual redemption. In medieval Europe, pilgrimage is an extremely common reason for travel. Anyone from peasants to princes can embark on one. Assuming, of course, you have your local priest's permission and enough supplies to undertake the journey. Our journey to Santiago is over 450 miles long and will take us the better part of two months to walk. We're hoping to reach Santiago by St. James's feast day on July 25th. It is considered a particularly holy year as his feast this year falls on a Sunday, a holy day in the Christian church. The Pope has ruled that any pilgrim that makes the journey in such a year will have all their sins forgiven, whereas in a normal year, usually this pilgrimage only merits a third of your sins forgiven. Who could turn down a spiritual offer like that? So understandably, perhaps, the trail is busier than usual this year. Some people believe that over 400,000 people will choose to travel to Santiago this year alone. But although many people will make the journey in relative comfort, traveling by horse or even in litters, basically a traveling bed, coming from a modest merchant background, we can't afford such things and must make the journey entirely on foot. As we are traveling more slowly, we must carry provisions on the off chance that we won't be able to find a generous host or an inn for our daily meals. Although pilgrims come from all over the known world of Santiago de Compostela, most will travel by four major pilgrimage routes, which begin in France and wind their way south over the Pyrenees, proceeding westward through the Spanish plains and vineyards into the region of Galicia and the city of Santiago itself. Summer is the best season for travel by far, as many of the routes are blocked by snow and ice in the winter, particularly in the Pyrenees. But the summer heat tames the unpredictable Pyrenees climate a bit. Although freak snow or hailstorms can still occur among the higher peaks, even in the dead of summer. Traveling through Spanish territory means traversing the various kingdoms of Iberia. Spain has been divided since 711, when Arab Berber forces conquered the ancient Christian Visigothic kingdom. Since then, there's been almost constant warfare for control of the peninsula, resulting in a number of small, semi-independent kingdoms. But peace seems closer than ever now. The marriage of the most famous power couple of medieval Spain King Ferdinand of the Kingdom of Aragon and Queen Isabel of Castile in 1469 has resulted in the largest unified Christian kingdom in Spain since the 8th century. We've just entered Castile, having left the still somewhat independent Kingdom of Navarra just yesterday. Navarra is a rich region, boasting of some of the best soil for crops and vineyards. It's also a deeply pious one. Its kings and queens have supported the Camino de Santiago for years issuing legislation to protect pilgrims and constructing bridges and walls along the trail in order to keep travelers safe. Because of this continued support, all major routes of the Camino flow through one small Navarran town, Puente la Arena, 
literally the Queen's Bridge, named for Queen Doña Mayor in the 11th century, who built this bridge, a beautiful, massive Romanesque thing spanning the Arga River. We stopped at an inn wall in Navarra, hoping to find a meal after a long day's walk. Many of the inns along the Camino provide fast and ready-made food for hungry pilgrims. Spain's multicultural history has left a permanent impact on its cuisine. Its history is a Roman territory, a Muslim kingdom, and now a Christian one, not to mention Nevada's links to both Basque and French communities, has yielded an impressive diversity to local food. Escabeche, still a very popular cooking style in both Spain and in Latin America, was introduced here during Arab rule. The name, which may link to an old Persian word for vinegar, referred to a method of boiling meat or fish and then marinating it in oil, vinegar, spices, and herbs. One of the earliest recipes for escabeche comes from a 14th century Catalan cookbook known as the Book of Saint Sophia. Although tasty, this technique was a lifesaver in an era prior to refrigeration. Although delicious as a dish, the preparation of first boiling meat and then covering it with oil and vinegar simultaneously was a preservation method, helping the meat to last longer. Such dishes are common in inns here, as they can be made in the morning and easily reheated throughout the day. Although it's easy enough to simply follow the river of pilgrims who are similarly making their way to Santiago, the savvy traveler takes advantage of a guide to the pilgrimage, commissioned by the papacy several hundred years ago. It's known as the Codex Calixtinus, and I've heard that the original manuscript of the guide is an impressive sight, filled with beautiful images and elaborate script. Now, as lowly travelers, we obviously can't afford such a rich manuscript. Even a basic version would cost us probably half a year's income. But its contents are by now common knowledge amongst pilgrims, where the routes are, the locations of the best inns and monasteries, and of course, the necessary spiritual stops along the way. Consider it a medieval Michelin guide. It'll tell us what rivers are safe to drink from, what kind of food to avoid in specific regions, and what churches house important religious relics and deserve a visit from pious pilgrims. We're actually heading to one such important church now, where a local saint performed miracles, built bridges and roads, and rest stops for pilgrims on the Camino. Saint Dominic de la Calzada, meaning Saint Dominic of the Road, called so because of all the roads he built for the Camino, is one of the most popular saints around these parts. So popular, in fact, they've named the nearest town for him. And if we make good time, we can make that town by nightfall. Everyone we meet on the road wishes us well on the journey. No one needs to ask where we're going. From our dress, it is obvious we are pilgrims. The pilgrim's outfit has become iconic, represented everywhere from sculpture to stained glass. The wide-brim hat, heavy cloak, sturdy leather shoes, as well as our walking stick are all the key accessories of any pilgrim. But the scallop shell, the symbol of St. James, marked us out in particular as travelers to Santiago de Compostela. So far, these items have safeguarded us on the trail. There are harsh punishments for anyone who robs or takes advantage of those undertaking this holy journey. Our outfit also helps us to secure room and board at many of the hospitals, monasteries, and inns stationed along the Camino. But these clothes are more than just for show. The trail is rough in many places, and has already taken us through most of southern France and over the Pyrenees. Our shoes have waded through streams and rivers, 
Our cloak has served as our pet on more than one occasion, and our hat keeps off both the beating hot sun and the sudden rainstorms as we make our way through plains, valleys, and mountains. The sun's pretty high in the sky now. It must be just about midday. Let's take a break from the walk and see what kind of provisions we've packed. Although the excesses of medieval banquets are legendary, epic sugar work and roasts to feed 5,000, those are far and away from the humble meals we'll have on our pilgrimage. Like most people of our age, apart from monks or the sick, we have two major meals a day, a larger meal in the early afternoon and a light supper in the early evening. Most of our meals, no matter our economic or social station, center on bread. On average, it probably makes up 6 to 70% of our daily intake. But not all bread is created equal. Wheat, particularly the highest quality, is reserved for royal and noble households, those that have the money to buy it. Everyone else usually has to make do with other forms of grain. Oats, barley, millet, and rye, these are the grains of the lower classes. And outside of manor homes and royal palaces, to make that grain into bread requires using a bread oven, usually a communal one. Although many towns or even villages might share an oven to bake loaves, these grains are difficult to work with, and many of the poorest peasants often are forced to make a kind of gruel or porridge with these grains, then go through the long hours and hard work of making risen bread. In some Italian and French regions, people have been known to mix in chestnuts or even beans into their bread to make up for a shortage of grain. And when things get truly desperate, even dirt has been used to thicken a bread dough now and again. So when bread is made, it's made to last. Coarser loaves made from grains other than wheat often have the benefit of lasting long. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Sugar than traditional wheat loaves. Since baking was a time-intensive affair, loaves needed to last a week or more in a peasant household. Now, ironically, these same kind of breads are perfect for pilgrims on the Camino. And we've packed a bit of barley and rye bread, some of the cheapest stuff available. Barley bread in particular is considered a hearty and rough bread, not much admired for its taste. Unsurprisingly, it's very popular amongst monks and hermits, those who prefer to keep their lives austere, unwilling to partake in any joys of eating. Barley bread also has the apparent benefit of lasting longer than almost any other loaf. There are legends that you can keep barley bread for over six months. Not that it'll taste much better as it ages. It's often considered to be, quote, saint's bread. As the story goes, you have to be a saint to enjoy eating it. But for pilgrims, it's the perfect combination. 
long-lasting, and with an air of self-denial, barley bread is a pilgrim's dream, and it'll be the main component of our midday meal today. We've also brought some thick, dark rye bread, also considered a lowly loaf by most. This is the cheapest bread available in France, as they apparently hate the stuff, insisting that it can produce weak blood according to the laws of Galen. Ironically, the same rye bread is adored in German-speaking regions, but who can account for taste? The origins of the saintly sixth-month-old bread may be in an old Roman secret for military rations, which left bread out in the sun, essentially baking it twice. This twice-cooked method, known by the Latin term biscoctus, will eventually give us the modern term of biscuit. Now, we don't want to take any chances here on the Camino, so we've used the same trick with our own rye and barley loaves. The flavor may not be great, but it ensures our bread will last for at least half a month. But we can only eat so much bread, particularly this bread. We've brought along some wine, cheese, and hard meats as well to keep our strength up. You also may be wondering about our water supply. Don't worry, we are too. Whether water is safe to drink is a significant and enduring concern for anyone in medieval Europe, but particularly on the road. With all this walking and the summer heat, those without some access to water won't last long. But sampling any nearby spring is a potential danger for a traveler. Stories abound about pilgrims or their horses who drank from the wrong spring and immediately fell ill and died. There are even reputedly bandits who regularly linger by such banks, waiting for travelers to sample the waters and become too sick to travel, making for easy prey. But any medieval European would be well aware of potential dangers lurking in any water source. And so, we've come on our pilgrimage armed with a variety of ways to combat any lurking danger in the waters. Trusted advice from the Codex Calixtinus tells us that the waters of the Ebro the large river we have been walking along since leaving Logroño, is healthy, but we need to make sure. True, we can keep drinking the wine we've been carrying in our calabasa, a traditional pilgrim item. It's a Castilian word for gourd. That's exactly what it is, actually. A dried and hollowed-out squash that can hold liquid and serves as our canteen for the journey. But we'd like our wine to last as long as possible. We're going to need water eventually, so we'll have to rely on tried and tested knowledge to make sure this water is safe. Doctors from the University of Salerno, the renowned medical center of medieval Europe, tell us that only, quote, water from the sky is considered the safest, probably meaning rainwater. Stagnant water in particular is to be avoided. But even when such, quote, sky water isn't available, there are a few tried and tested methods of trying to safeguard against bad, dangerous water. One, of course, is to boil it. But who has that kind of time on the Camino? You could, of course, also flavor your water with various berries, but that requires finding some along the trail. With all these other pilgrims around, any berry bushes have long been picked clean. Other options are to cut it with wine or vinegar. From a modern perspective, this could be useful in cutting the bacteria present in water. However, this practice also was upheld by the ancient Galenic medical tradition. This tradition dating from the 3rd century Roman physician Galen, and still very popular in medieval Europe, it was organized according to an item's elemental properties. For example, water was inherently cold. 
As such, it was believed that drinking water by itself inhibited digestion, leaving any food eaten raw in the stomach. In contrast, wine's properties were considered warm. Thus, according to Galen, the perfect drink to have while eating was a mixture of wine and water, in which the qualities of warm and cool balanced each other. As a matter of fact, this wine and water combination also works really well with our bread. It's a very common medieval strategy to soften hard or stale bread by soaking it first in wine. After all, our teeth need all the help they can get in this age before modern dentistry. After our midday meal, we push on to the town of Santo Domingo de la Calzada. We see the town walls rising out of the distance by late afternoon. Thanks to the work of this town's patron saint, the journey has been relatively easy. Clean and level paths, maintain bridges, and guards along the way in order to thwart any bandits that would prey on pilgrims. Many of these guards belong to the famous military order of St. James, founded in 1175 with the express purpose of maintaining safety on the Camino. St. Dominic himself, who lived in the 12th century, is responsible for commissioning most of the bridges and paths we cross on our way into town. The simple Romanesque church that existed when he was alive has now been converted into a gigantic and sprawling Gothic cathedral. We enter the cathedral to pay our respects to the local saint, but an odd sight greets us by the altar. There, next to the altar and the candles, are a pair of live chickens. Crowded around them are pilgrims, excitedly throwing them bits of bread. What on earth is happening? We find one of the local priests to ask about it and he proceeds to relate quite the story. Although St. Dominic is mostly remembered for his good works on the Camino, his miracles didn't end with his death back in the 12th century. As the story goes, a pilgrim was traveling with his parents to Santiago and happened to pass through the town. While he was staying at the local inn, the innkeeper's daughter fell madly in love with the pilgrim on sight. But when she revealed her affection to him and he didn't respond, steadfast in his vow to continue on his holy journey, she vowed vengeance. Angry that he didn't return her feelings, the innkeeper's daughter hid a silver goblet in his luggage and accused him of theft. When the authorities discovered the silver goblet, his guilt seemed clear and he was immediately hung for the crime. His parents, distraught over the death of their innocent son, had no option but to continue on to Santiago to complete their pilgrimage, but swore they would return to the town to visit the grave of their son. Weeks later, having completed the trip to Santiago, the parents returned to the town of Santo Domingo to find an impossible sight. Their son had been left on the gallows all that time, but amazingly, the boy was still alive. He yelled to his parents that it had been St. Dominic who had saved his life, but he needed the mayor's help from the town to get down from the gallows. The parents, amazed, rushed to the mayor's house. They burst in just as the mayor was sitting down to a dinner of roast chicken. When they told the mayor the incredible story, the mayor, perhaps understandably, was incredulous, saying that the boy was as alive as the chickens on his plate. As he picked up his knife to tuck in, the chickens on his plate did miraculously come to life, sprouting feathers and crowing. After that, the mayor wisely took this as a sign of a miracle, and indeed cut the boy down from the gallows immediately. Such a story has lent to the chicken becoming something of a sacred animal in these parts. In 2016, the town's enduring association with the story is reflected in locally made pastries, 
known as ahorcaditos or ahorcadillos, literally the little hanged ones. Made with puff pastry, these are often shaped to resemble chickens or the St. James scallop shell, sometimes both, and not to the joint religious associations of the town. More macabre or literal versions of the pastry even feature the boy hanging from the gallows, an edible symbol of St. Dominic's miraculous powers to bring the boy back to life. We'll put some images of these famous pastries, as well as a recipe to make your own, on our website. The chicken as a symbol of St. Dominic's miracle led, perhaps understandably, to the desire by the local clergy to keep live birds in the cathedral. Although it raised a few eyebrows at first, the church was able to secure formal papal dispensation back in 1350 to house chickens in perpetuity. Ever since, the cathedral has kept a white rooster and hen near the altar, and it's become something of a local tourist attraction to see the birds. Pilgrims will often take the feathers of the chickens and secure them to their hats to take with them on the journey to Santiago, a symbol of St. Dominic's blessing. Throwing breadcrumbs to the chickens is another favorite pilgrim activity. If the chickens eat the crumbs, it is taken as a sign that your pilgrimage will go well. If they refuse the crumbs, well, let's just say you may not make it to Santiago. After our visit to the church, we secure a room in the town's pilgrim hospice, or hospital, built by the industrious St. Dominic himself. Not just for the ill, the medieval hospital was often a multi-functioning institution, taking care of both the sick and elderly, as well as providing room and board to travelers. The density of traffic on the Camino has led to a number of these hospitals popping up on the trail, both in towns and in rural areas, usually staffed by monks or those belonging to the Order of St. James, usually former pilgrims themselves who were looking to help out future travelers on the way of St. James. These pilgrim hospitals were often designated with a scallop shell, carved right into the doorframe or wall of the building, a useful symbol in these times of low literacy as to the meaning and purpose of the building itself. Pilgrims could expect a bed, or at least a place on the floor, and an evening meal. After many nights sleeping on the side of the road or in questionable inns, this hospital is, in relative terms, a four-star hotel. It's a beautiful building, a one-story stone structure with vaulted ceilings and gothic arches, right off the main courtyard of the town, just steps from the cathedral. We're grateful for this simple but warming bean stew the monks who run the hospital provide, and after a long day of walking, a rest on any surface is welcome. It's still a long walk to Santiago, and we can use a full night's rest for another day of walking tomorrow. This episode of The Feast was written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. We'll put up some recipes for medieval bread, the chicken pastries, and some other medieval delicacies on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org, along with many more resources about the medieval and modern Camino de Santiago, including the famous manuscript of the Codex Calixtinus, perhaps the first guidebook of medieval Europe. Also, a huge thank you goes out to all our supporters on Patreon, who keep the feast up and running. Supporters of the feast will be getting snazzy new t-shirts soon, featuring the feast logo. They'll also be subscribed to our newsletter, The High Table, which will give you loads more information on each episode that didn't make it onto the podcast. To find out how you can become a supporter, visit our website and click on Donate. Well, that's it for us this week. Until next time, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is the feast.
tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.